You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to our February episode of the Simulcast Journal Club. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm here again with Ben Simon to bring you our paper of the month and a few extras. How are you, Ben? Yeah, really good. I'm excited to be back. It feels like forever and ever that we've been um, missing each other over the Christmas period and not doing any journaling. So it's been uh, really great to start the new year. Agree. And we're starting with a great paper and it's also given me enough time to collect some interesting extra ones for us to discuss. So uh, why don't we jump right into it and you can tell us about the paper of the month and some of the discussion and the expert opinion. So we're looking this month at The Human Factor, Optimizing Trauma Team Performance in Dynamic Clinical Environments by Chris Hicks and Andrew Petrosniak, and it's published in Emergency Medicine Clinics of North America. So I was pretty pumped to look at this paper. Uh, we touched on it a few months ago in our journal club, kind of looking at the extra reading, but I wanted to do a little bit more of a deep dive because I think for many years, uh, simulation educators have really embraced the gospel of crisis resource management. We've been preaching it to our staff about how important these principles are and how much they need to translate it into their clinical practice. But for some of us, I think we're starting to feel that the conversations got a little bit shallow and to truly master this teaming in resuscitative environments, we need a really deeper dive into understanding human emotion and our responses to stress. And so it feels like, you know, when we're in a debrief, we kind of keep repeatedly naming CRM principles, but not necessarily teaching people how to do those things better. And Chris and Andrew actually acknowledged that problem in their introduction. Um, And This paper is really a very rich and deep paper that's filled with specific and detailed strategies to improve teamwork, and it's been refined from both the extensive experience of the people who've written it, but also from their reflections within the field of simulation. So Hicks and Petrosniak structure their paper around four different levels within resus teams, uh, which they name self, the team, the environment, and the system. And I won't go through all of the different strategies that they outline for each of those structures in a row, but I think that really this paper does take a lot of time to absorb. But to give you a quick taste test, so to optimize the self, they talk about things like describing the difference between a challenge response and a threat response and advocate a number of different strategies to maintain sufficient mental posture to keep flexibility and resilience in a crisis, things like controlled breathing techniques and mental rehearsal and overtraining. To look at optimizing the team, they talk about things like avoiding mitigating language, defining a resuscitation lexicon, and setting common expectations via pre-briefing and shared mental models. And they go through similar things with optimizing the resus environment and optimizing the system. And I think the beauty of this paper is that rather than simply naming those concepts, each strategy is explained in very significant, very specific detail with useful clinical examples. And it really does defy superficial summarization uh, in a journal club like this, and it needs to be read and reread to really absorb all of the information that they're trying to teach us here. Yeah, so I think that's true, Ben. There is a huge amount of detail, and I said that in a couple of my comments. But what I would say, particularly as simulation practitioners, one of the take-homes from all of that is, just as you say, it can't just be named, as we sometimes do in a debrief, but also there need to be complementary 
strategies that uh, attach to anything we might be doing in simulation because it's very unusual, at least in my sims, we've never done any controlled breathing techniques. We've talked about how that might be good to deal with the stress, but clearly there need to be quite explicit strategies for bringing some of these things to the forefront rather than simply accepting them at a cognitive and conceptual level. So I think that's one of the strengths. Yeah, which is really interesting because I almost feel like maybe we need to go back a little bit more into teaching some of these skills as opposed to just purely debriefing and naming concepts. Um, And that kind of can sometimes sit a little bit uncomfortably within the learner-centered model and, and getting the the learners to talk more than the debriefers but at the same point i just wonder whether we're sometimes missing an opportunity to have those really deep dives into okay how do you you know fix your posture when you're team leading so that people are actually paying attention to you and things like that yeah and i think i totally take your point about being learner-centered but at the same time learners will only ever focus on things that are even within their remit of uh, perception and unfortunately some of these things haven't been enough at the forefront of our conversations in resuscitation or trauma or teamwork for it even to come across to a learner to decide to be learner-centered about it so i also don't think there's anything wrong with being a little bit directive here yeah, no, I think I'm going to have to try it. It's um, There's just so much good gold in here that I really want to explore with people that I work with. So in terms of the Journal Club blog responses this month, um, there wasn't a huge amount of controversy. I think people really enjoyed the paper and I was um, having a drink with Sarah Janssens and she was, she was sort of described it as essentially a, a paper of answers. So there wasn't necessarily a lot of disagreement this month. Um, but the three themes that I really took away from uh, this month were that the paper is quite detailed and it requires reflection and rereading for maximal impact, that the principles in the paper are relevant to teams outside of a trauma setting, and that the paper reframes a number of philosophical preconceptions about resus teams. So I think a lot of the bloggers described it as being a meaty paper or information dense and full of so much gold. Uh, many of us mentioned needing to read it and come back in order to absorb more specific details. And I was interested by your comment, Vic, in that you suggested that maybe this paper could have been published as a three-part series. It really has got so much good stuff in there that uh, I would have I would have liked a sort of series that would have built up, but equally, I guess we can just read the one paper at three sittings. Yeah, it's sometimes I, I do wonder whether it becomes a harder sell at a certain number of pages, which I think is really superficial. But um, certainly when I try and get people to read a paper, if they start seeing the length of it, they, there is a pretty significant barrier for some people. Not everyone's Other- as committed as you, Dr. Simon. <laughs> Exactly. That's that's their problem. Um, <laughs> so, look, the principles of the paper, I think my problem that I came with this paper was really I couldn't move on from the fact that it has trauma in the title. And I thought that the principles are really relevant to teams outside of a trauma setting. Um, so, Sarah, who's an obstetrician, obstetrician uh, discussed how the concept of a logistics and safety, safety officer or an event manager really resonated with some behaviors that um, midwives she works with already implicitly do that she might like to to explore some more Um, and certainly as a pediatrician who works in a smaller place where we don't see a lot of trauma I really felt that that a lot of the principles still translated to a resuscitative environment that didn't necessarily involve blood and guts every time 
Yeah, and I guess just in terms of insight about the authors who obviously I know, I guess it probably reflects a little bit Chris's role at his institution, which is very much looking at trauma teams and how trauma systems function. And I suppose for me, who has a slightly similar role at my institution, probably the disconnect wasn't so great, but I totally agree. And taking those couple of examples that you had about, for instance, logistics and safety officer, that's something that's come up, I know, in a lot of ECMO simulations and has resulted in changes in practice. Chris Nixon and others have talked about that. Uh, So I do think they're very relatable concepts to any particularly acute care teams. Uh, So yeah, maybe they did themselves a disservice there, but maybe also they were just feeling like they could only really talk about what they had done their research and work in that area. Yeah, absolutely. And I hear that. I just I just worry for people who don't do a lot of reading that they're going to overlook this critically important paper. It was interesting watching, because this is such an information-dense paper, what the little bits that people took away from it were quite varied. Different things really resonated for them. So Derek Louis, for example, discussed his thoughts a lot on the importance of followership and the fact that he felt this paper kind of... It, symbolized a kind of philosophical change in the way that we run our resources. Um, Bashan found the breakdown of threat response versus challenge response particularly useful, while Paul Elliott shared a rich analogy about um, how a previous colleague taught about the importance of shared mental models and thinking out loud. So we all kind of took our own uh, bits away from the paper, but I think it really does reframe a lot of stuff about what we're doing. Yeah, and I think, uh, I guess I'll just volunteer for me personally, it's already had an impact on my simulation practice. And the two things that I would suggest is some of the reference to overtraining and almost experimentation of models. And at the last two trauma simulations that we've done, instead of just doing our trauma sim and then sitting and having a nice chat about it and coming to a few very important conclusions, instead we've done a sim, we've had a short debrief, and then nominated some experiments we'd like to do in how we would deal with that situation differently and then done it again and then had another debrief. And I think in both those situations that's just been so powerful and we have done that in both a trauma operating theatre handover scenario and also in a met call scenario on the ward, so which certainly wasn't trauma. Um, and the other thing that it's sort of given me is probably a little bit more breadth of lexicon for topics and things to talk about in debriefs where teamwork comes up. So those same conversations that you were referring to right at the beginning about CRM, I'm now finding there's a little bit more depth to some of the discussions that I have prompted by a lot of the material in this, like things like should we have a safety officer. Even in that met call simulation that we did in the ward, we found we needed someone to be monitoring space and noise. And if you're the team leader, you just have got too much on your head Um, in your head to be thinking about that. Whereas if you have someone who's designated to manage space, logistics and noise, uh, it's actually a pretty good thing. So it's certainly taken me, just as you said at the beginning, uh, beyond CRM. Yeah. And I I was really interested in what you've been doing. Um, How did people take it or how did you introduce them to it? Did you say you were going to sort of stop and re-rehearse the whole thing or did it just kind of come organically? Oh, no, uh, we deliberately designed it that way. We put that in the pre-briefing so people would know what to expect and then we also um, articulated that in the verbal pre-briefing as well as the written materials. So people knew that we were going to do that and I guess I did 
even use that word. I don't know if Chris and Andrew use this word, but I use actually the word experiment um, so that people didn't feel like you did it wrong, now we're going to do it better, but rather we did it one way. This was the result we had. Um, what ways do you think could have improved it? Shall we try that as an experiment? And I think this idea of iteratively improving things um, is a sort of powerful model rather than assuming that the things we talk about in a debrief will then be implemented at some unknown time in the future. Mm, sounds really cool. Yeah, I know. We, we, we think it's a keeper. It's not for every scenario or every situation, <laughs> but we'll certainly be using it judiciously, I think. Yeah, awesome. So I might I might take that kind of example and, and move on to Vicky LeBlanc's expert opinion. So uh, she's the chair and professor of the Department of Innovation in Medical Education at the University of Ottawa. Uh, and the director of the University of Ottawa Skills and Simulation Centre. And she's also got a PhD in experimental psychology from McMaster University. And her response in our summary PDF is very much um, kind of like what you hinted at, Vic, uh, very much a reflection of both how far we've come, but also how far we have to go and how much more work there is to do in translating these principles into clinical practice. And uh, Being colleagues with Chris and Andrew, she reflects a lot on how different the medical culture was even just 10 years ago. And she talks about how the concepts that they've outlined in this paper have helped to transform our medical focus more towards team behaviors and optimization. So she gives the authors a really well-earned pat on the back, but then she says, look, this is just the starting point. Now it's the time for the hard work. And it's one thing to talk about these elements and to provide examples of how they can work. But like any other skills or system change, improvements will require significant training, commitment to change, and multifaceted approaches. And my hope for the field is that we commit to the hard work to truly bring change and to study it as we go along. She then reflects on some of the challenges in translating this knowledge by saying that when we're trying to teach them new ways to approach stress, whether it's tactical breathing or reframing, we're asking our learners to unlearn strategies that they've developed over a lifetime and to learn a new one. We often think or hope that we can do this in just a few hours and it's just not feasible. So Vicky acknowledges that it's it's going to take a lot more than that to get these principles truly embedded in our workplace. And it was kind of a really lovely um, sort of reflective, optimistic, and and then nose to the grindstone type uh, expert response. I really enjoyed reading it, so please do check it out on the website. Yeah, no, I agree. It was uh, really gave a sense of the journey that they've come through at their institution and more broadly. And I guess I'll just give a shout out to Vicky. I um, was so pleased when I went to London last year for that performance psychology and medicine seminar because I got to hear her speak. And having read her publications, and there are many, uh, Vicky really is a kind of guru of all things human performance and simulation. So if you're interested, look up Vicky LeBlanc um, on ResearchGate or PubMed and you'll find lots of good stuff there about how to find out how well we really do in sim and how to enhance performance. You're listening to Simulcast. All right. Well, thank you, Ben. We'll uh, leave that paper there and we might chat about a couple of little short snippets to some of the recent literature. So I'm going to start with a paper by our friend Jessica Stokes Parrish, who's been on Simulcast before, and uh, she's from the University of Newcastle. And this paper is called Investigating the Impact of Moulage on Simulation Engagement, a Systematic Review, published in Nurse Education Today uh, just in the last month. And look, the background to this, as I said, uh, Jess has been on Simulcast on an episode 12 months ago where we talked about moulage, bang for buck, and she's uh, in the middle of her PhD really asking some questions about is it worth it, 
what kind of level of moulage should we be aiming for? Because as she points out, you know, everybody does this to make it real in sim, to make it high fidelity, but our understanding of the impact on both learner engagement and any outcomes is really quite unknown. So just to sort of uh, say how she did this, so essentially this is described as a systematic literature review and, and the process is very well described. If you go through the paper, it sort of says how they did their searches, what terms they used and how many they came up with. And the question asked was, how does authenticity of moulage impact on participant engagement? So after they found their papers, they then put them through a quality measure called the MERSQI tool, and we've heard that mentioned before in some other papers we've reviewed by uh, Deborah Nestel and others. And this is an interesting point which maybe the qualitative research interested person might find useful, but the, the line in the paper is that they reviewed these paper with a critical realist lens. Now, um, what that means is that we're not trying to see does it work, which is a very binary so-called positivist question, but rather realist approaches ask the questions, how does it work, for whom, when, and under what circumstances? And I think that's the only realistic way that you can explore a concept like this. I don't think you can say, does moulage work? Because clearly it's not a binary question. But I thought just a little side uh edge there for people who are interested in those methods, and I'm certainly no expert in them, but Margaret Bierman, who's been another guest here on Simulcast, has written about how to do realist synthesis um, reviews. You'd be right into that, Ben. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's uh, my little subspecialty. Okay. All right. Well, what did they find? Well, the short answer is they couldn't answer the question, but they did draw a few themes out. Essentially, they found 10 studies that they thought met their criteria for being at least of interest to this question. But disappointingly, none of them actually specific addressed the questions about participant engagement. They found most of the studies were fairly poorly constructed and not uh, replicable, and that few were fairly were generalizable. A lot of them were in very specific dermatological things or very specific learner groups. And so as a result, I guess what Jess has done here is really outlined the gap in the literature, and I guess that's what you do in a PhD so that then your subsequent research can fill that gap. But I guess she's really outlined how, you know, we do this stuff in moulage, we really don't know what it does for learners, and perhaps we need to look at that a bit more deeply. Uh, she does make a few suggestions about how we might develop and or measure these tools for engagement, um, some methods for measuring it, things like eye tracking, what are people actually looking at when they're doing the sims, and that might give us an idea about how the moulage affects that. But I think overall it really gives us a framework about how we now might move ahead and think about answering this question. So, again, nice illustration of how to do a literature review in some of these topics, and I think also though nice content takeaway, which is I don't think any of us can be too sure about the impact we're having with our moulage because we really don't know. Uh, what do you think, Ben? Yeah, I think it was uh, a really good method for a really fantastic question that I think is uh, pragmatic and practical and useful. Um, I think like you kind of alluded to, for me, I'm not so much looking forward to that paper as I am looking forward to what Jess actually does in the next bit and explores how we can get the answer to the question that she currently can't find evidence for. You're listening to Simulcast. 
Okay, and then uh, the next paper, just to again go a little bit of a step to the side, how simulation can be used uh, to develop algorithms or clinical procedures as a testing tool. So this is a paper that's titled Role of High Fidelity Simulation in Designing Emergency Airway Management Algorithms. And it's by uh, McGrath and colleagues who are from Manchester in the UK, and it's published in BMJ STEL, that's Simulation and Technology Enhanced Learning, and it's just from this uh, uh, in January 2018. And I guess the context for this, as we've said before, is simulation is is not just for practicing and embedding uh, practice, but it's also for designing what we should be doing and testing what we should be doing. And again, I'll mention previous uh, podcast and blog guests here, Stuart Marshall, who we know did a lot of work um, in the human factors area using simulation to test algorithms. And in his case, there's a few ones, but he did some work on local anesthetic toxicity management algorithms using simulation. So essentially this article looks at how to design and refine practice guidelines for simulated tracheostomy emergencies, which was identified as a key issue uh, by this UK National Tracheostomy Safety Project um, using in situ simulation. And uh, I guess, Ben, this is one of those things that comes up, isn't it? You know, how do we write the guideline? It seems we've often got a lot of experts, but not really a lot of evidence about how a guideline should look. Yeah, I love this paper because I thought it was such a dem- good demonstration of the principles that Stu had been champion- championing for a while and trying to get away from that death by committee approach. Yeah, absolutely. So the paper is pretty um, short and succinct and it describes how they did this, but uh, there's a nice little figure in there that takes us through a timeline of how they approached it. But essentially, the first thing they did was develop four scenarios that they would use for the testing process and they got developed from actual clinical reports. So these are very realistic situation. And then they did use expert opinion and literature to actually pull together a draft of some possible algorithms for these tracheostomy emergencies. So they didn't start from ground zero. They started from what they thought would work. And then they essentially tested these through a series of these simulated scenarios where they got realistic um, teams and providers to have a briefing and then go through this standardized scenario using the uh, algorithm that was um, assigned to be tested. And they essentially assessed that performance objectively. So they looked at outcomes like the rate of desaturation, the number of amount of time the team were not doing something, time targets, uh, and just successful management of the situation. But then they also assessed the algorithm through a debrief and sort of asked the participants what they thought of it, how clear it was, uh, giving suggestions about how easy it was to follow. So then in a sort of iterative process, they made refinements to those algorithms and then came up with a sort of final version, which still then went through a kind of peer review process. And so the result of this, as I said, they started with um, 11 drafts of the algorithm that they evaluated. And looking at the things that they changed, they were kind of interesting. Sometimes they were to do with the structure. Sometimes they changed things like the color coding or reordering of the elements. So to my mind, this is just yet another example of a really rigorous way to use SIM 
to test out algorithms or processes. Uh, much more rigorous, for instance, than what I do, which is let's just do a sim and see if it works here. But rather, this is a really hardcore iterative approach, which I think is appropriate for these sort of national level um, uh, consensus approved algorithms. So yeah, nice paper, I thought, Ben. Yeah, I thought so too. I, I would have liked a little bit more information on the groups involved in the scenarios themselves because um, I was curious about what sort of biases or interests they would have actually had um, that might have affected the outcomes a little bit. But yeah, really nice paper. And it reminded me a little bit of the Sim Health um, forum that we went to as well on what can Sim be and a, a good example of uh, using it for something quite different. Yeah, absolutely. And, but I think you're right about that additional information. It would have been nice if they had a sort of online reference to the detailed stuff because then I would feel like, because I'd read this paper, thought great idea, but then I thought I'm not sure if I would really be qualified yet to replicate what they did looking at another thing. I think I'd have to go and have a bit more of a chat to these authors and um, get the real detail of it. All right, moving right along then. Um, third paper, uh, and then this background to this one is really looking at some of the issues that have been brought up recently related to uh, return on investment in simulation. So this paper was entitled Cost Utility Analysis of Virtual and Mannequin-Based Simulation. And this is by a single author, Hailing from the University of Washington, published in Simulation in Healthcare in January 2018. And as I said, there's been a lot of interest lately, uh, not just in conferences, but also in publications about this idea of what's our return on investment in simulation. And there's been publications both in the journal Medical Education and in Advances in Simulation last year about proposed uh, methodologies for doing cost-benefit analyses, many of them quite quantitative and mathematical, but um, something almost of a little rebuttal, I suppose, from some interesting authors, Nestel, Brazel and Hay, uh, about how hard it is to think about the value because I think often we're really quite good at um, determining the costs that go into SIM, but it's often harder to measure the benefits. Um, of course, we would say that, but uh, I think it's actually true as well because we're often stuck on what is this value? Is it learning outcomes? Is it health service outcomes? How do we measure them? But this paper has a go, and I think it's, you know, that's the bit that I mainly applaud is that people are really starting to do this hard work. Uh, so what they did with this paper was they had two groups of nursing students who were randomised to either a mannequin-based simulation or a virtual uh, simulation using a computer. Uh, they both did the same scenario. So this was a patient with exacerbation of COPD. And the people who did the mannequin sim did the stuff that might be familiar to many of us. They had a live facilitated scenario in groups of two to four um, with a debrief. The people who did the virtual sim, they did this as individuals. They sat at their computer. They did a web-based simulation and they got computer-generated feedback. So it was fairly clear to me what the two groups did and then they were very rigorous in the way they tried to measure what outcomes came from those two groups. They used sort of multiple methods. They had a knowledge assessment tool, a pre and a post. They used a validated scoring tool from the uh, US big nursing study on satisfaction and self-confidence. 
And a selected group, not all the participants, but a selected number from each group actually had a directly observed performance of not the same scenario, but a scenario with a standardized patient encounter, which also the performance of those students was scored. So I think they tried really hard to find multiple ways to assess the outcomes in terms of learning for these students. And then they also described in quite some detail about how they worked out the cost of per student of each of these different kinds of simulation, looking at the costs of the equipment, of the staff time, of the uh, resources and sim lab, etc. So drum roll, what happened? Well, there were no differences in any of the groups. Uh, same kind of outcomes or at least no difference demonstrated in either changes in knowledge, changes in performance or changes in satisfaction and self-confidence. So the outcomes were no different. In terms of the costs, unsurprisingly, the mannequin was more expensive. And just to give you a number, uh, in US dollars, the learning process cost $36.55 per student in the mannequin and $10.89 in the uh, virtual simulation. Uh, there was a little bit more detail in that to the point where they actually went down and calculated what the cost per improvement in learning was. But I think the take-home message is, of course, mannequin-based simulation is more expensive than if you sit on your own at the computer. So really interesting study. Um, you know, I still think this is really hard to measure an outcome. Have we measured the right thing here? But I think this is exactly the kind of work that we have to start to do uh, to really try and work out and demonstrate our value. But to my mind, uh, the trouble with comparing two methods is probably they need to be complementary rather than competing with each other. Nothing wrong with doing a computer-based sim to optimise the outcomes from then your scenario-based mannequin sim. But uh, what do you think, Ben? Yeah, I'm um, trying to overcome my own biases to comment on this paper, I guess. Of course you are. <laughs> I, I do think actually it was really interesting when we went to Sim Health again and I was doing some sort of interviews with people who were doing um, sort of innovative VR programs for medical education and I'd have to say the ones that I see are often sort of very costly in development um, taking a, a lot of personal time and and struggling to get it financed financed and and pay for quality programmers and quality art etc to actually achieve. So I, I feel like there's maybe there wasn't enough of an acknowledgement of the development time that's required for a lot of uh, ITVR type stuff um, at the moment. Anyway, I know it'll get sort of more refined and smoother as time goes on. Uh, but I don't think that was really acknowledged. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. You know, any of these things have a kind of fixed cost and then a variable cost according to, you know, how many people actually end up doing it. So you're right. With any technology, there's obviously going to be a lot more fixed cost at the early phase, whereas it will become much cheaper if 2,000 students do it as opposed to just 80. Yeah, and I kind of, I don't know, I think I've, I'm repeating myself probably, but I, I feel like sometimes we've gone from is sim even worth it to being asked, can you just give sim to everyone? And then can you just give sim to everyone, but can you make it a lot cheaper than what you're currently doing? Um, and I feel like along that process, we're starting to see a lot of innovative stuff, but also a few little, what was that word I learned from the other podcast? Graceful degradation. Um, a few little fine cuts in terms of human contact, human interaction, 
expert feedback that we're kind of sacrificing along the way. And it just worries me a little bit that we're, I think this is a good paper, but it worries me that this is the trajectory that we're heading towards. You're listening to Simulcast. All right. Well, let's do our last paper here. Um, again, really outside the box, but something I think we're going to see more of. Uh, so this paper is entitled Poverty Simulation, an Experimental Learning Tool for Teaching Social Determinants of Health. And this is by Hasai and Coates in Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training from December 2017. Um, one thing that I'll just point out here, just in terms of the journal it's published in, uh, because people might think about this. This is a relatively new journal. It's an offshoot of academic emergency medicine. It's an uh, education and training offshoot. And importantly, it's a uh, section called the educational case reports section. And uh, they say quite explicitly these might be single-centre reports that don't have robust evaluation data. So that's a lot of the work that we do. We've got a good idea. We think we'd like to share it, but we don't have some really strong evidence that it works. So if you are interested, I would suggest this is not a bad place to target some of those um, papers for dissemination. Uh, all you have to really have is provide a background and explanation and a description of what you did. Obviously, it needs to be good, otherwise they're not going to accept it, but um, I think this is a good place to put some of those innovative ideas. Uh, yeah, any thoughts on that, Ben? Because I think this is sort of some of the take-homes about where we can do our own scholarly work. Yeah, no, I think it's a great place to start, um, and I, I really like the idea that we can have a academic communal space where we can share ideas without having to have the sort of relentless systematic review to back it up. That's right. I mean, it's still peer-reviewed. There's, It's still got plenty of quality needed for it, but not necessarily proving that it works. Okay, so let's get on to the actual paper. So the background to this is, look, I think everybody knows that we've got to have a broader view about our curricula, whether it's in undergraduate training or in emergency medicine training as this was in, uh, you know, contemporary health professional education includes areas like social determinants of health. And we've got to think of ways that we can uh, engage learners around these concepts. So, in terms of what these guys actually did, I was reminded in many ways of a sort of gamification process. Uh, and so I'm actually just going to read out their explanation. So during their intern orientation week, they did a thing called a poverty simulation. So they brought the new interns from the departments of emergency medicine, internal medicine, family medicine, and obstetrics. And they basically gave them roles in the shoes, as they describe it, of low-income patients. So they got grouped into families of one to five. Um, they all got a role as a family member. And then they had to, and I quote, get through a simulated month which was actually delivered over a one-day simulation session and they had 15-minute uh, sessions that each represented a week in this family's uh, life. And during that time, again, this is where the gamification comes in, I guess, they had to accomplish what they describe as instrumental activities of daily living. So what they had to do, things like going to work, um, applying for benefits, playing bills, going to school if that was their role, uh, having to deal with um, all the things that we all have to do when we do our lives, but which are obviously much more difficult if you're constrained financially. 
And so, uh, again, they've got a nice little description of that. And if you read through some of the ground rules, it really does come across as a game because there's different things people have to do. Uh, you know, there's a thief in this simulation who might come and steal stuff from you. Uh, you've got a place where you can go where they um, provide interfaith services and they run a homeless shelter. And there's a series of stations that uh, the people in the groups can actually go and participate in different activities of their daily living. So it's sort of an interesting concept and I think it was interesting to read what happened as a result because they did this over the day uh, and then they did a debrief and it was very clear that the learners had an experience that was both stressful to them and actually quite emotional when they found they had to do things like uh, not give their family their medication so that they could actually have food that week. Um, and I, so I guess it has really highlighted things to those learners, at least as described in the paper. Uh, they also say it was a really good bonding thing for their new interns, and I've no doubt that was the case, as with any sort of group activity. And I guess it just invites us to think about, Ben, you know, what do we use SIM for? And uh, some of these topics that we would normally not regard as within the remit of SIM might actually be very suitable for it. Yeah, I thought um, it's such a lovely way of using, I guess gamification is a really effective way of using storytelling to build empathy, but to kind of up it a little bit by placing the learner in the center of the narrative. Um, and I think it it does require, I suspect, very close and delicate design though, because I think if you're putting someone in a game or a simulation, um, then the rules have to be fairly explicit because, I mean, you can rig the rules so they will feel whatever you want them to feel, I guess. But if you do it in a manipulative way, then they're going to start to feel manipulated. So um, I thought this was a good demonstration of doing it in kind of a fair and believable manner. Yeah, I think you're right. There's some definitely some uh, little bear traps in here, but I think as a concept, it's a good one. Yeah, it was really nice. All righty. Well, that's it for this month for my papers, Ben. Did you want to give us a uh, heads up about what we're talking about in March? Yes, I'm quite excited. We are going to look at the Pearls paper. So we are doing a classic month this month, and we're going to look at Walter Epic and Adam Cheng's Promoting Excellence and Reflective Learning and Simulation, which was published in Simulation in Healthcare. Um, and we've got Kamal Bajaj. I hope that's how I pronounce her name. Um, from the NYC Hospitals and Health Simulation Center, who's been very kind enough to be our expert next month. And she's done a huge amount of work uh, in translating pearls and uh, sort of promoting the new debriefing tool. Um, so that's kind of the second hidden curriculum of, of next month is to have a look at the tool as well as, as, well as the paper itself. Fantastic. So everybody should know about pearls. So we'll be pretty keen to hear people's thoughts on how it's useful for them and uh, what they think of the paper now we actually go back and have a look at it, having been doing it potentially for quite some time. So we'll look forward to that, Ben, and we'll look forward to uh, chatting in a month's time. Yeah, can't wait. Looking forward to it already. All right. This is Ben Simon and Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. You're listening to Simulcast. <laughs>